This morning I'd like us to consider this lesson, Lord, teach us to pray. And these are the words of the disciples in Luke chapter 11. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, we have Jesus teaching His disciples how to pray, and also in Luke 11. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about His kingdom and the kingdom of God, about the nature and character of those who would be citizens in that kingdom. He's not teaching their specific entrance requirements into the kingdom, but the character of those who would make up that kingdom. That kingdom is the church of the living God that was established on the day of Pentecost. The occasion in Luke chapter 11 is that Jesus had been praying, and when His prayer was ended, His disciples came to Him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught His disciples. Before we read those passages, I'd like us to consider then this, that the disciples had a desire to be taught. A desire to be taught is a necessary element of being a disciple of Christ. In fact, a disciple is by definition a learner. In John 6 and verses 44 and 45, Jesus said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from Me, or from the Father, comes to Me. Disciples, then, are learners. Disciples need to be taught, and we need to be taught. This is, of course, seen in the fact that Jesus obliged and answered their request to be taught to pray. Now think about men such as Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He was a praying man, but wasn't a Christian. Did he need to be taught how to pray? I would answer yes. Jesus and the disciples teach us how to pray. Jesus taught them and He can teach us how to pray. As Lord and Master and Teacher, He teaches us how to pray. I want to begin by reading Luke's account. And this was a later occasion than Matthew chapter 6. But in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 11, in verses 1 through 4. And it came to pass, as he was praying at a certain place, that when he had ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Turn now then to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In Matthew 6 and 9 there, Jesus said, in this manner, therefore pray. Jesus is therefore not teaching specific words, 
that need to be repeated as some formula of words, but He's teaching about how to pray. The spirit of prayer, that is the attitude within us as disciples when we pray, and even the kinds of things to include when we pray. I want us to consider each part of this prayer Jesus gave as an example of the manner in which to pray using Matthew 6 and verses 9-13 through as our basis. Our Father in heaven, He begins. Prayer then is properly addressed to God our Father in heaven. By addressing God as our Father, we're acknowledging that we are His children. It expresses our dependence upon Him as our Father. Christians are His children. Not all can claim to be children of God, but those who are Christians. In Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians 1, and beginning in verse 3, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. The spirit of sonship then is in our prayers when we say, Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. That's a big deal to be a child of God. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Exclamation mark. I know that those weren't in the original. But listen, the way it's written, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. He makes a distinction between those of the world and those who are children of God. That is, those who have obeyed Jesus Christ and are in Him. In Galatians chapter 3 and verses 26 through 29, we're all sons of God speaking to Christian saints, to saints. Galatians 3 26 through 29, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Look at what sonship involves. Being a child of God. And so when we pray to our Father in heaven, we recognize that He's our Father and that we're His children. And if you went through the Old Testament, you'll be hard-pressed to find men ever addressing God as their Father. Go look for it in the concordance. We see God, Lord, Creator. But look for Father in there. I'm not saying you won't find it. I didn't. And I've read that others haven't. But you go in the New Testament and you'll find that over and over and over again. Those who are obedient to Jesus Christ, they're children of the Father. Children of the Father. And they dress, we can address Him as our Father. Here's a relationship then that we have through Jesus Christ 
with God. Our means, our Father means that personally He's mine and He's yours. If you're a Christian, He's our Father. When some men in religion speak of men in their clergy as Father and Holy Father, in that religious sense, not in the sense, of course, of an earthly father, lowercase f, they not only violate the direct command of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 9, call no man on earth Father, but in so doing they sin and lift up men to that title, they denigrate the only true Father who is in heaven. For Jesus said, One is your Father, He who is in heaven. In addressing our prayers to our Father in heaven, we recognize then our dependence upon God. As children of an earthly father, we're dependent upon our fathers at a young age, of course, for sustenance and provision, for care and direction. Do we not remember, as we say, in the spirit and the attitude behind this, our Father in heaven, recognize that we as His children are dependent upon Him. Such dependence is rooted in faith that is that belief and trust in His goodwill toward His children. And so our Father in Heaven is a recognition of, of a relationship and an attitude toward God. First of all, we think about how disciples are in a relationship with God. And that is that they are children and He is their Father. And also there is this attitude of dependence when we think about being the Father's children. But He went on and He said, Hallowed be Your name. Hallowed means to make holy, to regard as holy, to honor as sacred. And thus it's the idea of set apart, special and distinctive. It's proper then to include praise of God in our prayers. It's significant that the first petition is for the honor of God's name. Hallowed be Your name. And so while we address God as our Father, which confesses a close relationship with Him by being His children, that does not at all mean we can have irreverence toward Him and consider Him like some familiar friend that we chew the cud with. The opposite of hallowing or reverencing and regarding His holiest name, of course, is to use His name in vain which is forbidden from the beginning of time. Some people with the idea of speaking of God like the big boy upstairs or the boss in the sky, or He's like a daddy, is completely irreverent toward God. And there's lots of irreverence toward God in worship in many places. The idea of His name represents His identity. Hallowed be Your name. The idea of His name represents His identity. That is who He is, His character, and His holy nature. And thus we have great honor and respect and fear that is due Him because of His holiness, His greatness, His glory. He's so much greater than we. In Psalm 111 and verse 9, Psalm 111 and 9, He says, "Set redemption to His people he has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. 
or as the King James has, holy and reverend is His name. There are some men who carry the title reverend. The title and the name, the description reverend, belongs only to one being. One. And that's God. In fact, we use the word awesome in a very casual way. That's the word here, reverend, that's translated awesome for us here. And we think about things that to us in our language are awesome. But think about how God is reverend. Translated awesome in the New King James, perhaps also in the New American Standard. In Isaiah, or rather Psalm 8 and verse 1, Psalm 8 and verse 1, our, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Your name in all the earth, You who set Your glory above the heavens. How excellent is Your name in all the earth. Psalm 148. Psalm 148 and verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. Reverence and respect for the great name of our God and Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses, or rather 6 and verses 15 and 16. He will manifest in His own time He who is blessed and only potentate, only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 reverence for God, His Father and our Father. These are not just words, hallowed be Thy name, but they come from a heart, an attitude that has reverence and respect. It would be inconsistent to utter these words in prayer and then show little reverence or respect to Him in our worship by calling Him and saying, Hallowed be Your name. It shows that we're worshipers of God. Disciples are worshipers. They're interested in worshiping as well as living, of course, just as He has directed. In these words then, we see a spirit of reverence in which we should pray. And we see a relationship. And that is that disciples are worshipers of God. There are vain worshipers of God, but disciples are true worshipers of God. They worship in spirit and truth. So we see a spirit of reverence and a relationship of being a worshiper of God, honoring the holiness of God. Next, Jesus utters these words, Your kingdom come, Thy kingdom come. It's another petition for the things of God versus the things of men. How often do we pray and our prayers may be centered on us and <laughs> we have lots of problems. <laughs> so we understand our prayers are centered on us and our concerns and all of this. But look at how these first two petitions are about God's will, a concern for the things of God. This expresses an attitude 
of anticipation for the kingdom of God in which Jesus would rule as king. It demonstrates a desire too that He would then rule in hearts and lives of men. Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come recognizes that we are subjects in the kingdom. In the day that Jesus spoke these things, the kingdom was at hand. That means it was close. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, John the Baptist said so. He said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus came on the scene. And in chapter 4 and 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. And in Mark 9 and 1, He said to His disciples, Assuredly I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. The kingdom of God was close on the horizon when Jesus spoke these words. The kingdom for which Jesus taught His disciples to pray that it would come did indeed come on the day of Pentecost. And Christians are in that kingdom. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 Colossians 1 and 13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Who's the Son of His love? Jesus Christ. Into the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 22 through 28. Hebrews 12, 22 through 28. Speaking to saints, but you have come to... You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men, made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You've come to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. And in verse 28, Therefore we are receiving the kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In the second chapter of Acts, Peter preaches that Jesus was raised from the dead to sit on His throne. If one believes in His resurrection, and I don't know of a Christian, even in the loose way of using that term, which we ought not use. But, even one who claims to believe in Christ, I don't know of one who, who doubts and disbelieves His resurrection. But if you believe His resurrection, then you believe in His kingdom being present because He was raised to sit on His throne. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. The two go hand in hand and cannot be separated. The Lord's Supper is in the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, But I say unto you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26 and verse 29. To eat of the Lord's Supper today and yet believe that the kingdom is a future event and has not yet come is to deny the truth of what Jesus said there. In Matthew 26 and verse 29. There's an attitude then in these words, your kingdom come, of subjection. 
being a citizen, a subject in the kingdom, one who is in subjection to the king. We may we should ask the question, is it appropriate today to pray, Thy kingdom come? Certainly not in the sense that Jesus spoke it because the kingdom has come. And that's what He was speaking of here. Many don't believe that it has come. Many are still waiting for the kingdom to come and for there to be a thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. That's premillennialism. And it's wrong. Praying thy kingdom come expressed a desire for that kingdom that was at hand to come. Christ's rule to come. And I'll say this, while we do not pray for the kingdom to come because it's already come, our prayer should be that His kingdom would rule in the hearts of many, including our own, that His kingdom might be brought to the lost through the preaching of the Gospel. That's what we need to pray today. In these words, then, we see this Spirit within us. A desire for His rule. Do you desire the rule of Christ in your life? That's behind these words, Your kingdom come. You want to be and continue to be a subject in His citizen. Subject to the King. To the monarch. A subject in His kingdom. That's the relationship in these words. And then He said, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is yet again a third petition for the things of God. It's an expression of the spirit of obedience. The spirit of obedience. These words express the attitude that God's will should be done in our lives. That we therefore want to be servants of God. We have the example of Jesus in His prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane before His arrest. Before His mockings and beatings and scourgings and crucifixion. Three times He prayed. And in all three times, He prayed about the Father's will being done. The first time He said, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. Or in that second prayer, If this cup cannot pass away from Me unless I drink it, Your will be done. That's the attitude of a servant and the spirit of obedience. Our attitude should be that. We will be a servant in His kingdom doing His good will. Surrendering our will to His will. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, he said, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The perfect will of God. Here's a prayer. Your will be done on earth the way you would have things to be done according to your will. And so our attitude, the spirit behind these words is that your will, Lord, will be done in my life. I yield myself in obedience. My members as instruments of righteousness to you to be used in your service. And so in these words, we see this attitude or spirit behind them of obedience. How could we pray these words, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and live in disobedience? 
It's incompatible. These words are incompatible with the spirit of obedience. A spirit of disobedience. These are words that come from a spirit of obedience. A relationship of servant. The relationship in the kingdom of being a servant who seeks the glory of God. But then these words, give us this day our daily bread. This expresses again a spirit of dependence that we should have within us upon God. It's a confession of dependence upon God. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 3, when Jesus spoke there, He said, give us day by day our daily bread. This is a prayer for actual need. It's a prayer of moderation, not luxury. It's a request made by a supplicant. It's not a word we use often, but if you think about supply, God is the supplier and we're the supplicant. We're the one who asks another in a position of power for something in an humble way. We're supplicants making requests to the supplier. Our needs are to be supplied by Him, our Father in Heaven. We say, give us this day our daily bread, this petition. It's a recognition that our daily bread is given. It is His blessing toward men. We recognize that He showers blessings upon us. James 1 and 17, every good and every every good gift And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Someone says, well, don't we work for our bread? Yes, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, For when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Yes, we work for our bread. That's our part. But we recognize the things written in Ecclesiastes 5 and 19. As for every man to whom God has given, God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Even the power to eat of that which you work for and bought is from God. And thus, when all is said and done, Jesus is teaching us to ask for Acknowledge where it is from. And be grateful, of course, for it. Someone says, well, I don't know. Uh, seems like I'm blessed materially whether I ask for this or not. I think about a child getting whatever the parent thinks his heart desires and just giving it to him. Let me ask you in that situation, it's not a perfect parallel, but let's have a spoiled child who gets everything he ever wanted without even asking for it. Because the parents know what He wants. I want to ask you who's the worst for it? Besides, of course, the parent. Someday. Who's the worst for it? You know who's the worst for it. The child. Who never asked for anything because he just gets it. We ask for our blessings. That child's to be pitied. And we're to be pitied if we don't ask God and thank Him for it. Recognizing that it's all from Him, the goodness from Him. We need spiritual bread too. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, 
Do you want that bread too? We want that bread daily. We want to be fed by Him. But we see in this, again, a spirit, an attitude of dependence. Someone says, give us this day our daily bread, but they never stop and recognize their dependence upon God for every good and perfect gift that comes down from Him. That's not right. I have a spirit of dependence when we utter these words and we recognize our relationship toward God. And that is that we're supplicants or petitioners in the kingdom. We're supplicants in the kingdom. And then Jesus said, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Luke 11 and 4, He said, forgive us our sins. So we're not talking about monetary debts with God, but sin. And these words express an attitude. Remember, so much of this is about attitude and spirit. These words express an attitude of humility and penitence. Sorrow, regret, repentance about sins. You know, someone may lack the humility to admit wrong that they've done to another, and they may escape that ever being addressed with them. But that won't work with God. We must confess sins to God in order to be forgiven. Sin is a transgression of the law. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. James 4 and 17 also tells us that sin comes from omitting too. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. So these words express the need of one who is in need of forgiveness. Sin is foremost against God. Sin incurs a debt before God which we cannot pay. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 through 21, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, the apostle reminds, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Redeemed. Bought back. Purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We had a debt we could not pay. This of course does not mean a response is not required of men in order to be forgiven. The debt by the blood of Christ. God's plainly revealed in His Word the conditions of forgiveness. But we look at these words back here in Matthew chapter 6. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive our sins. This obviously is about it for a disciple of Christ. For those who are not Christians are described as dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And Jesus is not suggesting here that the prayer of one who is not a citizen of the kingdom, a disciple of Jesus Christ, can simply pray to God and be forgiven. Rather, we're taught in the New Testament he needs to believe and repent and confess Jesus as Lord and Christ and be baptized for the remission of his sins. In order for his sins to be forgiven, that's calling upon the name of the Lord. But for the Christian, the citizen of the kingdom who sins, here Jesus is teaching us to recognize that when we sin, 
We need to recognize our need to be forgiven by God. And we need to actually pray and ask Him to forgive us of that sin. That, of course, agrees with the truth Peter taught in Acts chapter 8 and verses 22 to 23. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. It agrees with the truth spoken in 1 John chapter 1 and verses 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Speaking to disciples, Christians, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's Jesus teaching us to do just that. Repent and pray to God is the way to be forgiven. And now's the time while we're among the living. Christians are not forgiven by God because we feel we've, what we've done is not so bad or because others have done worse or because we've forgiven ourselves and we've moved on. We're forgiven by God because we repent and confess and ask Him to forgive our, forgive our sins as Jesus taught here. Jesus taught us that we can have all the humility and penitence in the world for our own sins, but if we're unwilling to forgive others, we cannot be forgiven. In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, He followed this prayer by, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We cannot then be unforgiving. To be unforgiving is a sure way to remain unforgiven ourselves. There's no mercy then for the unmerciful. And so we see in these words the spirit of humility and penitence and then mercy toward others. And we see the disciples are in this situation. Ones who sin in need of forgiveness. And then finally, do not let a, lead us well, there's one more after this, the doxology, but do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here's an expression of this spirit. The desire to be led by God and to be delivered by God. This is not meant that God might lead us to do evil. Do not lead us into temptation like He's, he's ready to do that or something. And so we must pray that He will not do that. We're really praying that He would lead us in the right way. It's kind of a negative way of saying that. Lead us in the right way. Because we know from James 1 and verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. We're tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed, James goes on and says. And we don't want to be led in that way. And so we pray to God, don't lead us. Lead us in a way that we won't be tempted. Lead us in a way that we won't be tempted and tried above what we're able. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, we have this promise. But you know, even though we have promises, doesn't mean that we don't pray for them. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation 
will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. But God does allow testing of our faithfulness. He allowed that with Abraham. Hebrews 11 and 17. By faith, Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac. Job chapters 1 and 2 show us Satan coming and saying, let me do something. (laughs) He's allowed. And men are tried. And we don't have the picture of all that, do we? But it's right and good to pray that God will providentially lead us away from temptation or trials that could be too difficult for us. And to be delivered from the evil one. The evil one is certainly Satan, but he has lots of helpers. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, we read, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But as we read, how does he, as we read through the Bible, is he just directly doing something? Is he working through men often? Look at how Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. We look at these words. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Paul is asking that a prayer be offered up of that very thing here, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. A prayer of relief and deliverance from something that would overcome us. Second Peter chapter two and verse nine talks about having talked about Lot and Noah. The Bible says the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust for punishment for the day of judgment. David often in the Psalms spoke of being delivered from evil men and he begged for it. We're praying then for help from God. We of course must make good on our part. That is, we must do our part in the equation. In Romans 13 and 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. If I go and put myself purposely in a place of temptation and then pray God to deliver me, I think I've not worked my part like I ought to. We see both relationship and attitude here. The attitude or the spirit is a desire to be led by God, to be delivered by Him. And it shows us in this relationship in the kingdom of being followers of God. Followers who crave deliverance from evil. Jesus ends with this, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. An expression of praise. An expression that magnifies God and His kingdom. His kingdom was near at hand at that time. Established on the day of Pentecost. It came when Jesus had been positioned at the right hand of God as King to rule in His kingdom. His spiritual kingdom, the church. Power means His rule. Set at the right hand of God. And so the prayers of disciples should emanate and issue from the heart, the attitude, the spirit that is brought out in Jesus' teaching here. The manner 
a prayer taught by Jesus to His disciple does teach us that prayer should be directed to God our Father in heaven, that our prayers should include, we should pray expressions of praise. Our prayers rightly should include petitions for both physical and spiritual blessing. But I want us to see in, in, in this lesson that Jesus' teaching in this prayer shows us the attitude, the spirit with which we should pray. The teaching takes us to the root of our inner man, which should exist within us the desire above all things for the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that's what He spoke about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount was about His kingdom and citizenship in His kingdom. And when we pray in this manner, it's like following the instruction of chapter 6 and 33 a little later where He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We cannot pray in the manner in which He taught and then be consistent at the same time demonstrating little concern or reverence toward God. Demonstrating disregard or indifference toward Christ's law and His authority. Not recognizing our utter dependence upon Him both physically and spiritually. How can we be that way and utter this prayer? The little concern for the spread of the Gospel. little concern for being used in the service of God and ready for every good work. little concern for avoidance and deliverance from evil. We learn, though, in this prayer, the spirit that we ought to have. We ought to learn the manner in which we pray. We can formulate and pray impressive and powerful words but if we do not have within us the attitudes expressed in what Jesus taught here, I believe we've missed Jesus' teaching. The context in Matthew 6 in which He taught this was about motives and attitudes in prayer. We didn't read around that. But Jesus taught us positively what to do here. And it was opposed to the prayers previously, previous verses of the hypocrites and the heathen done for show and for the praise of men. Our prayers then should emanate from a heart, an attitude, a spirit. A spirit of dependence as a child of God. A spirit of reverence as a worshiper of God. A desire for God's rule in what we think, say, and do as a subject in His kingdom. A spirit, spirit of obedience as a servant in His kingdom. A spirit of... Uh, Dependence again as a supplicant or a petitioner in His kingdom. A spirit of humility and penitence over our own sins as well as mercy. The spirit of mercy toward others. Recognizing we need His forgiveness. We need His mercy. And if we need His mercy and His forgiveness, how who are we to withhold it from others? And this prayer demonstrates to us the spirit that we ought to have that is a desire to be led and to be delivered by God as a follower of Him and His will. Do we see then the attitude Jesus is teaching us to have when we pray in these verses? It would be good and right for each of us personally to examine ourselves when we pray to God and be sure we pray to Him from an attitude of spirit of dependence and reverence. 
an attitude that desires His rule and His leading and His deliverance, who is ready to obey Him in humility and penitence and with mercy. If you're here this morning and you are not a child of God, won't you become one while you have opportunity? This day is given as a gift from our Father in Heaven. If you believe the Gospel, will you repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God, be baptized for the remission of your sins? We'll help you do that this day. And you'll be saved. Then remain faithful to death. And you'll receive that crown of life. If you become a Christian and you're not living right, will you make it right with the Lord as we stand and sing a song of encouragement?